Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. I would like to start uh, this morning's conversation with Charles about economy, because the world is obsessed with economy. And actually, it's not even what they call the economy is not even economy. It is mononomy, <laughs> or moneynomy, or, um, or finesonomy, or something else. Uh, the eco and nomi words are very beautiful. And uh, the same word comes to ecology, economy and ecology. And eco in Greek is home. So, uh, ecos, home. In the wisdom of Greek philosophers, home is not only where you live with your uh, bedroom and bathroom and kitchen and so on and garden, but the entire planet is our home. And the management, nomos means management, so the management of our planet home is economy. But in our modern language, when uh, chancellors and prime ministers and Bank of England and all those people talk about economy. They don't mean about our planet home. They mean money management, finance. When they say economic growth, they don't mean growth in economy. The trees are growing. Let's have more trees growing and let's have more food growing and let's have more flowers growing and let's have more all the things which really manage the home they don't mean that. The economy, economic growth, they mean money supply and money growth. So they have completely distorted the true meaning of the word economy. I was invited to speak at the London School of Economics. And uh, I said to them, do you teach ecology? They all, no, we don't teach ecology. We are a school of economics. I said, ecology means knowledge of planet home. Logos, logic, logistics, knowledge. So, are you teaching your students to manage something which they don't know? How are you going to manage something you don't know? So, you should change the name of your college, university, from LSE to LSEE, London School of Ecology and Economics. Without knowing your ecology, you can't manage your economy. But they don't mean ecology or economy is true meaning of the word. They mean just money management, business management. But when um, uh, Charles wrote his book on sacred economy, he means really economy, which is the ecos, the planet home, the earth home, and how we live on this planet, in this planet home, harmoniously and, and happily 
and, and constructively and creatively so that we don't uh, destroy it in the name of economy. Now, Charles, it would be good to hear from you a little bit why did you put sacred word with economy and, and also you have some idea for gift economy in your book, haven't you? So yeah. would you like to bring those two words, gift with economy and sacred with economy, and how do you bring those two words okay. together? I, I guess it, it, it is kind of uh, starting with this divide that you're pointing to between economy and the rest of life. Yeah. Where economy, as you were saying, has become in at least in academia and in political discourse, it means the money world. Economics is basically the study of money or the study of transactions that are mediated by money. And this division is so profound that I even read one economist who said, you know, if agricultural production was decreased by 50%, it wouldn't make that much difference because agriculture is only 3% of the economy. So that would only mean a one and a half percent decrease in economic activity. It wouldn't actually affect life that much. Yeah. Like that is how profound this division has become. And, and I, I believe that it mirrors the topic of yesterday that we were talking about, the division between spirit and matter, this uh, rending in the world that has left us impoverished in so many ways. So sacred economy I mean, really, the basic question was, how can we have, how can we, I mean, really, economy means how do we take care of each other? Hmm. Could you so, explain the meaning of the word sacred? What does the sacred word mean? Well, it's not, not well understood, the meaning yeah, of the word. Yeah, and, and again, like, uh, to reprise the theme from yesterday, I hesitate to try to define sacred mm. at the risk of making it into less than what it is. Yeah. But one thing is for sure, the way that the economy works today is not sacred. Yeah. That film we saw yesterday, yeah. you, know, you ask, well, why are they wrecking the land of these beautiful people? Why are they building those pipelines? It comes down to economy. It's not that, that the pipeline companies are so enamored of pipelines and they think they're so beautiful <laughs> that we're just going to do this, you know, it's, it, it's rooted in international finance, foreign exchange, the need of, of Malaysia to generate foreign exchange to meet uh, debt obligations, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, yeah. And every single problem I looked at on this planet yeah. came down to that. Yes. So I'm like, well, why should it be that way? Why should money be this engine for destruction when, in fact, money is nothing but a story? It's nothing but an agreement among human beings that assigns meaning and value to symbols. Mm. If it's a story, we could make a new story. Mm. So what new story would be aligned with what is actually sacred or what's becoming sacred mm. to us? Mm. And this is changing. <clears throat> this is another aspect of the turning of the age. That's mm. the theme of our overall weekend here. What had been sacred to us, meaning the dominant culture, mm. was in fact the... Uh, growth and ascendance of humanity, mm. this, this technological program of mm. world domination, mm. uh, the conquest of nature. That didn't used to be mm. a bad word. A mm. uh, hundred years ago, the conquest mm. of nature was something that 
everybody in Western society would validate and applaud. Mm. No, no longer. But so, so I'll just finish. Conquest of nature. It's no longer sacred to us, and what's becoming sacred to us yeah. is the health and and vitality of yeah. all beings on this planet. Yeah. Now, conquest of nature came with the more scientific approach, like Francis Bacon and, uh, and people like that, that we have to conquer nature. But it goes and back farther than that, even, even, even back to, that. to ancient Sumer and, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, yeah. you know, where part of his heroism is to, to go and kill the lion or, or cut down the forest. Yeah. Very early on with the advent of uh, large-scale agriculture, yeah. Evil and good became associated with uh, evil with the wild and mm. chaos and mm. good with order and domesticity. Mm. So it does have roots beyond that, Even but beyond certainly that. the scientific became revolution... became more prominent. Yeah, yeah, kind of reached its full flower. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yesterday's film touched on this idea of agriculture. Is Bruce still here? Yeah, you are there. Yeah. Um, you touched on this uh, agriculture... <laughs> And it was, by the way, very good film. I enjoyed very much watching it. What I would say is that coming from my family, my mother was a, a smallholder farmer, mm -hmm. but we had no machinery whatsoever. In our home, we had no electricity. Uh, uh, there was a no, only plowing was with the plowing or the wooden and the little, little, um, uh, little metal and a wooden plow. And, uh, uh, the, the bullocks and the camels ploughed the land uh, with the person behind it. And so still, it was a very much close to nature. Um, uh, my mother will always walk from uh, home to the farm, and, and I'll walk with her, even four, five-year-old, uh, six-year-old. And while walking, mother will talk about tree being our teacher, and honeybee being our teacher, and how honeybee goes from flower to flower, damaging no flower, never any flower has complained that the honeybee <laughs> took too much nectar away. So this small-scale kind of uh, agriculture with culture, culture meant soil, um, that was still not that far from kind of traditional indigenous values. But when the industrial agriculture came, and the small farmers removed, then the sacred quality of, uh, of economy and sacred agriculture became defunct. And now, um, now the Green Revolution, um, huge tractors, combined harvesters, farmers hardly touch the soil. They put this ghastly music in their ears and, and they, they just manage the machines rather than agriculture, the land. And so the sacred quality of uh, agriculture, which I remember from my childhood, and my mother, which treated the earth, the soil, as sacred, and, and thanked the soil, thank you for giving us food, and thank you for giving us water, and thank you for all that kind of humility, which I remember from my mother's time, has gone now conquering nature, as you say. The farmers go as if land is on, and land is lifeless, and, and earthworms are so in the way, uh, we have to put chemicals and fur. So industrial farming is where actually uh, the, the big problems have become and the sacred quality of economy has gone. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that like agriculture is bad or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that each uh, step 
that humanity took in its evolution required new ways of staying connected yes. uh, to the earth and to all beings. Yeah. So agriculture, for example, comes along with certain necessary rituals yes. and teachings and remembrances in yeah. order that we don't start treating nature as just uh, you know, the instrumental object yeah. of our utility, yeah. which it, you know, the agricultural mindset can turn into that yeah. unless we constantly reconnect. And so the step into industry requires another um, evolution in our means of staying connected. Mm. But we can envision, we can envision an industrial economy that is nonetheless ecological, mm. as long as it remembers, yeah. like your your mother mm. remembered. Mm. So it remember one thing it has to remember is that um, the principle of nature that waste is food. Everything yeah. that we create has to be food for something else, has to be able to be recycled. Yeah. Um, and, or to get to the topic of gift, yeah. um, has to be a gift to some other being or some yes. other process in nature. Yeah. Because ecology really, you can, I think, can very fruitfully see it as a circle of gifts or a network of gifts, yeah. where every being, in addition to uh, uh, serving its own survival and well-being also contributes something that is seemingly unnecessary to itself like like uh, nitrogen fixing bacteria they don't need the nitrogen no but it it is a gift to the plants which then are able to grow and feed the fungi which then feed the bacteria or something like that you know yeah. it's a it's a gift circle yeah so if we want our industrial economy to be ecological in nature, it also has to embody that principle of the gift on, on many levels. And so one of them is that we can't take more than we give. Mm. We can't produce things that are not a gift. Yeah. And then um, another thing that I write about uh, in terms of gift is, is one quality of a gift is that the gift travels mm. in all gift societies. And we saw that in the, in the film, like the, the Panan did not uh, accumulate and hoard things. Mm. They were nomadic. So possessions were a burden. Mm. And in fact, if you wanted everything that we associated with wealth, like security um, and uh, the support of people around you, then it would only come through generosity. In fact, in the film, it said somewhere, like if, if one, one or two people are stingy and mm. they don't share, we'll know about it. Mm. So <laughs> if you're one of those people and you're, you don't share and then something bad happens to you, people are going to remember and they're not going to take care of you. Mm. Mm. So mm. security comes, is, comes to the generous. Mm. Well, money right now is the opposite. Mm. If you give away your money, you're going to be less secure. You're not going to have as many investments. You're not going to have financial independence. Mm. So something in the design of money has turned this uh, ancient logic mm. that says more for you is more for me mm. on its head mm. and created a competitive milieu where more for you is less for me. Mm. Absolutely. So, the economy of nature is based on gift because in nature there's no money. So everything has to be a gift. So when you go to an apple tree, and now we are in the season of apples, you have apples here? 
Yeah, yeah. In Devon and Somerset, uh, Mossy, um, in Somerset there are lots of apples. In Devon, in my garden, we have 15 apple trees. Now, if you go to an apple tree, they don't ask you, have you come with your visa card? It's a gift. And gift also non-discriminate. Apple tree will not discriminate against anyone, whether you are a sinner or a saint, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are black or white, gift economy of apple tree and all nature is unlimited and unconditional and non-discriminatory gift. That's an economy of nature. Economy of nature is always and also not sell, apple tree will not eat its own apple. It's always giving. Of course, when apples rot in the soil, it becomes soil, and then soil may, so that's a gift moving. Right. Soil may nourish the apple tree, but apple tree will not eat its own apple. Uh, it's gift to the animals, the humans, the, the bees, the wasps, anyone. Earthworms, uh, we think earthworms are <laughs> but for a gardener, like I am a gardener, um, and for me, earthworms are precious. Six tons of soil is turned by one earthworm a month. No. That's a scientific fact. Six tons. Six tons of soil is turned by one earthworm a month. And they are giving that gift to me. I don't have to dig, dig and dig. Earthworms are working for me day and night without asking me for any wages. <laughs> and so that's a gift economy. So economy of nature is gift economy. And, and, and uh, if you look at uh, anything, but our, we have created a society in which everything has been valued in monetary terms. Everything has to be put how much it cost in money terms. And now, Charles, even the environmentalists are coming to this idea that we should put monetary value in what is called ecological services or something? Ecosystem services. Ecosystem yeah. services. I think there's a kind of mistaken uh, attitude, and I want to know your view on it, because uh, if you start to put monetary value on air and water, and the rainforest, and, and a kind of uh, natural gifts which we have been given in a gift economy, if we say how much money it will, it will um, save, or how much money it will cost if you destroy rainforest, that's the wrong way to look at nature. Yeah. The, I think the intention is good. You know, the idea behind ecosystem services is, is that right now, if you pollute, if you destroy biodiversity, if you emit carbon, then uh, that creates costs yeah. to other, other people that you don't pay. Yeah. Well, that's not fair. No. So in, if you want to align uh, uh, financial self-interest with the common good, those costs then should be internalized. Mm -hmm. That's the logic behind ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. So you should have to pay to pollute. You should have to pay an amount that um, makes it no longer profitable to do that. So the basic logic is that 
The problem is that we have not measured and quantified and monetized enough. Mm. But if we monetize and quantify and measure everything, then we will be able to have a perfectly rational, <clears throat> optimum society, optimum economy. The problem, though, lies in, and this is again one of the themes of yesterday, um, one of the uh, deep assumptions underneath that is that everything can be quantified and measured, and that we have the capability of figuring out mm. exactly how valuable everything is and what the long-term effects of, say, pollution or ecosystem destruction are. So according to our current state of knowledge, say we value a certain wetlands at 50 billion pounds. Mm. And we say, you know, in the past, you could have destroyed that wetlands without paying a cost, but we're going to make it 50 billion pounds. Okay. That means that if you could make 60 billion pounds from strip mining it and paving it over and building a shopping mall there, then you should do it because it was only worth 50 billion pounds before. Mm. And now you're making 60 billion. Right. And guess who is going to make the valuation of 50 billion pounds? It's going to be the guy who's going to make 60 billion pounds from paving it over. Mm. Or, I mean, that's simplistic. Actually, it's going to be the set of social processes and, and values and worldviews and perspectives yeah. that also um, motivate the uh, shopping mall entrepreneur. Like, it's, it's a certain way of viewing the world that devalues mm. and misunderstands mm. the, the intricacy and sacredness of ecology. But when you say intention is good, I challenge that. I think intention itself is wrong because when you say that uh, wetland is $50 billion uh, um, worth, you are, your intention is that nature is valued only in terms of its use to humans. Yeah. Nature has no intrinsic value. Only value is how useful it is to us. It is 50 billion pound worth us because it gives us something. So human beings are put at a superior position, higher position, and all nature there is there for our service to serve human need. So the intrinsic value of a tree, the tree you are good as you are. You have no monetary value. I cannot say you are um, 5 million pounds worth or 10 million pounds worth. Tree is tree and, and it has a right to live. So I think even the intention is wrong. Well, right. But, but the, the reason I say that... Superiority. The reason I say that is when, when I actually talk to people who advocate ecosystem services valuation... Yeah. What's really deep down is that they love nature and they want to find some reason to, to value it. Yeah. And all they know is to convert it into... But you're right. Like, like, I mean, suppose I, said, suppose I said, you know, Satish, um, after this, I would really like to just mug you and steal your wallet yeah. and, and exploit you and take advantage of you and get money from you. And why shouldn't I do that? And, you, and, and someone says, well, Charles, if you do that, then you'll get arrested and you'll have to pay an even bigger fine and your, yeah. your, your uh, 
a net expected value for yeah, doing exactly. that is negative, so you shouldn't do it. And I'm like, okay, you're right. Um, I won't exploit you. Like, there's something wrong here, right? Because if that calculation turns out to have a net positive expected value, yeah. then you're saying I should do it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's it. Right. That's it. This is why I think even the intention that just because you will get arrested and put in jail, therefore you should mug me, is, is not the, on the right intention. The intention should be that nature is sacred, as you talked about, a sacred economy. Nature is sacred, has its own value, intrinsic value. It is the right to live. Humans have the right to live, and humans and nature. The, um, the, I go moreover. I would say humans and nature are not separate. Humans are as much nature as nature is nature. But the word nature comes from Latin natura, uh, which means um, birth. Uh, natal, when a mother is pregnant, uh, you go for a prenatal check. After the birth, you go for a postnatal check. The natal and nature come from the same root. So nature simply means being born. So humans are born, trees are born, uh, cows are born, dogs are born, cats are born, butterflies are born, and we all die. So being born and being, uh, being uh, or going to die is the cycle of nature. And so this idea that nature out there, and we humans have right to exploit and value it and put value on it, and, and we can use nature for our use, uh, and we are separate from nature, that in itself is a wrong intention. Mm -hmm. So I, what, what I want in sacred economy and also sacred ecology is we come to this understanding that we are nature and what we do to nature out there, we do to ourselves. We have to drink the water, we have to uh, breathe the air, we have to eat the food from the soil. So we must protect our soil, our air, our water for its own value, intrinsic value. So if we have that culture, that new kind of thinking, then um, we will tread lightly and we will use uh, like a, a mother feeds the baby um, and, the, and, and the baby is, uh, is uh, not over-consuming. When it's, uh, it's full, it stops drinking. So, uh, so the kind of mother-baby relationship, nature-human relationship is such that we take from nature what is our need, but we minimize our need and tread lightly on the earth. So then we can all live a good life without destroying. So sacred ecology and sacred economy go together. Yeah, and it really is holding other beings sacred, holding them as uh, full beings with consciousness and agency and their own subjectivity mm. rather than as objects. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that anything less than that deep revolution mm. is going to fundamentally change the destruction, the collision course Exactly. 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 Yeah. Because our, well, because we are obsessed with the economy, and also all of us have now iPads and iPhones and and all these things. Technology, science, te together with the economy, technology and science, we seem to think that technology will find a solution. Science will find a solution. We don't have to worry about it. And so, I consider, as I said at Shimaka twenty um, fifth anniversary event. I said science, technology, and so-called economy, the money economy, and business, and media, all these things are, I call, icing on the cake. The cake is 
natural world, earth, air, fire, water, the four elements, and I call the fifth element imagination. Because without imagination, humanity cannot survive. Um, and our modern economy and industry is destroying the human imagination, as much as it is destroying the air and water and polluting the environment. Also, our universities, our media, our industry, our business do not pay any attention to imagination. And, be and because our humanity, human beings are now living unimaginatively, we are suffering. So cake for me is earth, air, fire, water, which is nature out there. We are also nature and imagination. So that's the cake. And, and science, technology, money, banks, all the things, infrastructure, airports, all the infrastructure, they are just icing on the cake. At the moment, the world is eating, icing, icing, icing. And that's why they are sick. So what we are saying is that we have to take care of the cake. We have to take care of our basic elements of earth, air, fire, water, which is nature, and imagination, which is human spirit and human nature. If we can, and if we can have place like this to, to bring these sacred ideas back into the mainstream dialogue and not push aside some eccentric Charles and Satish and Rupert and Jill and a few Bruce and a few eccentrics talking about these ideas. But because if we just eat icing, 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 how long can you survive? It's ultimately the economy means earth, air, fire, water and imagination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll tease out one little, um, yes. one little thread in there. Um, so we, we, we've, it's, it's obvious how the money system that we call the economy depletes the earth of its health and goodness mm. and depletes society of, of community. We, we talked even yesterday about how song, how music has become something that was once co-created and become a um, consumer product. In a way, the same things happen to imagination, mm. where the uh, pro proliferation of first television, uh, well, first cinema and television, and then video games and virtual reality and all of these immersive experiences are kind of a um, substitute for especially what children had done before, mm. creating worlds of their own imagination, mm. having adventures outside. Mm. Uh, now these adventures, now the kids are not allowed outside even. Uh, like seriously, if I let my, my, my son play outside by himself unsupervised, mm. child protective services can come and take him away. <laughs> I, I know people that that's happened to in America. Not safe. Yeah, it's not safe because CPS is going to come to <laughs> but, but like this, the, the kingdom of childhood, these imaginary worlds that depend on children getting together unsupervised, unprogrammed, Absolutely. that has been um, taken away. And in its stead, uh, these artificial uh, virtual experiences and, and imaginative worlds that are created in the software studio somewhere have been offered uh, you know, as a replacement. And this has converted something that was once part of the 
um, commons, mm. the, not the physical commons so much as the um, cultural commons or the imaginative commons. It's, it's been a kind of an enclosure movement that has exported it into the realm of property. So when I, when I began studying economics, I was like, well, why is this happening? Mm. You know? And it has to do with the imperative of growth that's built into the money system. Mm. And I, I might, I don't know if I'll have a chance to go into that more deeply exactly why and how it's built into the money system, but we can see that when the economy stops growing, everything stops working. And therefore the, the mission of political leadership and the kind of, I mean, the, the unquestioned mm. goal mm. of economic stewardship is to create growth. Mm. Governments right, left, and center all agree mm. that economic growth is going to solve our problems. Mm. Exactly. And they're right, given the money system that we have right now. And you can see the, the global financial crisis right now is fundamentally a crisis of growth. Mm. To get more growth, I mean, you can keep it going a little while longer if you... Mm. Uh, open up fracking and arctic drilling and mm. and i mean you can do some things to keep it going for a little while longer mm. but unless you believe that infinite growth is possible on a finite planet at some point you're going to reach a turning point a point where you no matter how hard you try you cannot maintain growth mm. and what does growth mean for a mainstream economist growth means the increase in the number in the amount of goods and services exchanged for money, mm, right? Exactly. Like you were saying, yeah. when trees grow, when the, when the ecosystem becomes more diverse, that doesn't count as no, growth. No, it doesn't count. Yeah, it's no. only when imagination is turned into product, yeah. when childcare is turned into a product, when yeah. cooking is turned into a product, when yeah. trees are turned into a product. Yeah. That's what growth is. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what um, can accommodate more yeah. bank lending yeah. and... Yeah. Anyway. yeah. If, if I cook at home for my family, that's not part of economy. Right. But if I go and work in a restaurant and make that food into a commodity to sell, then it becomes part of economy. Right. So economy is only when it's a money exchange. This is why I think we have to reclaim the word economy and have its true meaning restored. Because what they are talking about is not economy. It's not, it's a money-nomy. Money-nomy. Yeah. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so, but imagination, uh, this economy, and I want to hear more from you about this, this economy, this industrial economy, or the, uh, the money economy, is actually the enemy of imagination. Because, um, you are required to work in BP or um, Walmart or Tesco or these thousands and thousands of employees, 20,000, 50,000 employees. They are not required to use any real imagination to create something uh, from human spirit and, and, and from your heart, uh, from your soul, um, uh, because you are in a system and that you have to just follow that bureaucracy, that system, that uh, kind of, so that that system will lead to more economic growth. So you are part of that chain. You cannot be an imaginative, creative, um, soulful, compassionate, um, uh, a kind of uh, poetic 
uh, an artistic person working in a BP or, or, or Walmart or Tesco. So, so yeah. the, the industrial system is the enemy of imagination. Whereas William Blake says that nature is imagination itself. You go, Blake was the kind of poet of imagination and all poets are <laughs> imagination. So when you are working in nature, you can relate to nature with your own poetic and, and artistic imagination. So we have to challenge the industrial system, which is destroying our imagination. Yeah, for that, I would, I would kind of draw on Lewis Mumford. Yeah, okay. Um, who, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with his thinking and writing. He was uh, a polymath and um, historian of civilization, historian of technology, and many other things. But one of the ideas that he articulated was that of the, the mega machine that started, he said, even in ancient Egypt, where for the first time, processes and roles became standardized. For example, in the building of the pyramids. So there'd be, there were, and there was a very, very fine differentiation of roles. Uh, you know, several different kinds of stone cutters, and one would perform this task, and one would perform that task kind of in an assembly line. And so this original machine was composed of human parts. Hmm. And then he looks at history as the replacement of these human parts with mechanical substitutes until one person almost <coughs> could build a pyramid by himself because all of these other roles have been mechanized. But the template for industrial society was created back in the days of the... Uh, megalithic builders. So the, the uh, suppression of imagination you're talking about comes very much through the standardization mm. of, of functions mm. that happens in an economy with a high degree of division of labor. Mm. Now that standardization, which renders the components generic, um, is deeply related to the growth and the, the domination of money. Mass production. Right, mass production. Um, it's inextricably linked with money, which is the very essence mm. of standardization. Mm. There's nothing more generic than a unit of currency. Absolutely. It, it's yeah. the, you know, whereas commodities, that's a step toward this absolute standardization and annihilation of difference, annihilation of quality. Right, commodity is the only relevant features of a commodity are the whether or not it meets the specifications. It's the, the things that can be measured and quantified. If your, <coughs> you know, iron ingots, for example, meet certain standards of purity and weight, then they count. And any difference between the two iron ingots that is not encompassed by those specifications, like their shape could be a little bit different maybe, um, or the iron could have come from a different mine, maybe one of them is more ecologically damaging than the other one, that doesn't matter, right? It's only these, this finite set of standard measurements. So that, so a commodity is a step mm. toward mm. the obliteration of imagination. Yes. But yes. money is the final step. Yeah. Because Two pounds, I mean, if they're a banknote, they're still different, but the differences between the two pounds, the two pound notes, um, which could be a different serial number or something like that, 
uh, or maybe one of them is a different, slightly, you know, worn or something, that is completely inconsequential. Mm. You don't care what serial number your, mm. your 10 pound note has. And when, then when it becomes electronic money, which 97% of all money is today, then there is not even a difference in the serial number. Mm. They're, they're completely identical. So, it's, so money is kind of the, the end point of the um, obliteration of the uniqueness and relatedness of all things. Mm. And to get back to, to sacredness, yeah. I yeah. think that the sacred ultimately comes down to uniqueness and relatedness. Mm. If, if I see you as just a member of a category, mm. then you're not unique. You're not, you're not, and, and your relationships are not visible. Yeah. But to see you as a sacred being, I have to, I have to appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned 97% of money electronic. <coughs> maybe large percentage of that money is not related to any goods or services. They are just going around the world uh, chasing money, chasing more money, and the money is making more money. So your stocks and shares, today your stock might be worth uh, 100 million, and tomorrow it might be 50 million, and the day after tomorrow it might be 150 million or 2 million. So it's the money is making money just in our kind of illusion rather than, uh, than reality. Uh, but you mentioned Louis Mumford, which uh, if you have not heard of him, he's worth kind of reading and, and pursuing because he was a kind of prophet of uh, a very holistic uh, ecological thinking. But the other person who is familiar to you, who is very similar to Louis Mumford, is um, William Morris. And William Morris, uh, in, Louis Mumford was in the United States, wasn't he? Yeah. Whereas uh, William Morris is our own uh, indigenous uh, prophet of uh, arts and crafts movement. And he said, he, he was baking on beauty. With imagination, you produce beauty. When you lose imagination, you have mass production and no beauty. And so, but he also said that making something with your hands has also intrinsic value. You don't necessarily only make something because uh, you, uh, you need it. Yes, you, you, you use it. But the process of making, process of a pottery making or furniture making or a, a building house or making something is a kind of, you, while you are making a pot or, or designing a tapestry or making a painting or making a furniture like this chair, you are also making your soul. You are making yourself. William Morris says that making, but the word poet comes from making. The poet is not the person who puts beautiful words on a page. Poet is the one who can make something with imagination. And so that's why the poesis, the word poesis, autopoesis, self-making. And so if you look, I mean, you can say, oh, we can't go back to William Morris. We are in the 21st century. We have to go with um, Steve Jobs and, and all the other kind of prophets of our time. But I think that if we want to create a, a sacred economy and a sacred ecology and, and create a more um, harmonious world where um, all this uh, kind of ill health, cancer, 
डिप्रेशन फैमिली ब्रेक डाउन कम्युनिटीज ब्रेक डाउन इफ वी वॉन्ट टू टेकल ऑल दिस प्रॉब्लम्स आई थिंक समबडी लाइक विलियम मॉरिस एंड जॉन रस्किन इज द अदर ग्रेट राइटर इन ब्रिटिश हिस्ट्री एंड पीपल ऑफ दैट काइंड कैन बी इट्स नॉट गोइंग बैकवर्ड आई थिंक वी हैव टू ब्रिंग दैम टू आवर टाइम एंड मूविंग फॉरवर्ड बाय विच मेकिंग एंड सेलिब्रेटिंग द मेकिंग and making something beautiful something useful my mother used to say she was i think ahead of william morris she used to say um make something which is three things at the same time it should be beautiful it should be useful and it should be durable <laughs> and and i call that in english my mother's bud principle b u d beautiful useful durable my mother's bud principle <laughs> so make something which is beautiful uh, like william morris said don't have anything in your house that you don't believe to be beautiful and useful at the same time he also said that so they were very similar um, although they did not know each other <laughs> <laughs> so i would say that imagination <coughs> can be manifested through your hands using our hands we have to and i think the universities and school system is making humans useless you come out of the universities and you cannot build a house you cannot grow food you don't know gardening you don't know cooking you don't know how to mend something how to nothing you can use your two thumbs with your ipad or a computer but nothing else people want jobs behind a desk or behind a computer but they do everything but must be made by machine therefore our soul is starving this is my soil soul society comes in a human soul is starving because we are deprived of this creative imaginative poetic process of engagement with making something building a house making a painting we don't have time for singing so i said to um, our friends that sing this morning that's a kind of making you are making music so i would say if we want to create a new world where sacred ecology and sacred economy come back we have to come back to our hands our body we have to embody these principles they are not just intellectual ideas to write in a books which charles and i are good at writing but we have to embody them in our lives and this is why i like gardening and i like cooking and at shumaker college when we started i said all our students are offered this opportunity to go in the kitchen and cook and go in the garden and do some gardening use your hands and the classroom is not only where the lecture is taking place but classroom is also kitchen and classroom is also garden so i think william morris would be a very good uh, comparative to louis mumford uh, a very good person to to, uh, to 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 refer to one of the critiques of the uh, arts and crafts movement yeah is that whereas several hundred years ago these uh beautiful useful and durable things that we made with our hands were were integrated into life yeah like you you made say a broom because you needed to use a broom yeah. you know everything you made was was part of of living a good life yes when when industrial products <laughs> substituted for mm. all of the things that we actually needed mm. then the arts and crafts produced kind of these irrelevant things like yeah they look nice they're kind decorative of, they're kind of like yeah they're they're just kind of they just kind of decorate yeah. the generic yeah. standardized 
industrial life. Mm. So how to make them how to yeah. make them actually relevant? Yeah. Like, what can I do with my hands? Like my my wife, you know, we have a three year old, and she very much believes in this. Mm. But so they do these projects, mm. but everything that they make, like let's say a Halloween costume or something like that, could be much more easily. I mean, they spend hours and hours making something that could be bought for you know ten dollars. So the, the alienation that we have from the embodied, hands-on world mm. is partly baked into the system. Yeah. It's a product of the system. Yeah. And one way that I resolve this in my own experience is that, in fact, the mass-produced things don't meet all of our needs. Like you were saying, there's still an emptiness in the soul when we're surrounded by, by things that are all the same, mm. that are all standard, yeah. or, or that are at best different permutations of the same yeah. standard components. Yeah. Uh, our hunger for, for beauty, yeah. our, for real beauty, yeah. is unmet. And so I come to a place like this. There's something deeply nourishing and satisfying mm. about this environment. Mm. It's not just like there's this pattern on the ceiling and, it, and if I put this on my ceiling at home, then that would satisfy that need. Mm. No, because it would be totally out of place there. This, in fact, if you recreated this building almost anywhere else, it would be an affectation. Mm. It would be a, a fetish mm. almost. But here it's real because it's in a context mm. of, I don't know, 18th century English high society and this whole historical lineage. And it kind of makes sense mm. for it to be here, mm. to have a gilt mirror there. I mean, anywhere else, a gilt mirror? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it would be completely out of place. Out of place, yeah. yeah. So it really, so this coming back into embodiment is inseparable mm. from the matrix of relationships that you're yeah. embedded in. Yeah. And Absolutely. so you could say that, that to um, re-immerse ourselves mm. in that matrix of relationships mm. Mm. and reclaim, it's not about, sometimes people look at the title of my book and they think that it's about abolishing money. And it's not. It's about reclaiming many aspects of life from money. And it's about changing the nature of money so that it, and so that it embodies qualities of the gift. But it's not about abolishing money yeah. or abolishing the division of labor or global level of organization, but it is about reclaiming many parts of life for the local, for the place-based money, money is a good invention. Uh, I think money makes life very easy. Money is a good invention, but money is good invention as long as money is a servant rather than a master. And money is used for exchange rather than as a capital, wealth. Money is not wealth. But when you, the politicians use the term wealth creator in terms of those who create money or, or earn money, money is not wealth. Money is only a measure of wealth. So it's a good measure. And if I, if I want to buy a chair, um, I can't bring my uh, apples uh, to buy a chair. So, I, so we exchange through money. It's a, it makes life easy. But... When money becomes wealth and money becomes a symbol of status and power and control, then it has lost its purpose. The money was created for exchange of goods and services. And if that was used, I'm all for money. That for me is sacred money. It's a good money. But the money is no longer meeting its purpose. It has become a symbol of status, power, control and wealth. So you don't, if you have money, you don't need to do anything. But I think even if you have money, 
you need to cook, you need to garden, you need to make. Um, emperors, Mughal emperors in India never took any money from the treasury. There was no salary. They made caps, embroidery on the cap and they sold the cap in the market. And from the income they created, the, the emperor of India was making caps for his living, never took money from the treasury. So prime ministers and presidents of the world should do gardening and cooking and, <laughs> and making things and not just kind of uh, make wars and, and, and go to Iraq and all those sort of things. Because they have so much time, what to do? They can't make gardening, can't do cooking. Can't <laughs> so I think we should put them to useful work. Yeah. <laughs> So, maybe we should have a little break yeah, sure. and then we can open for discussions and questions yeah. from you. Yeah, so we're just open to whatever questions or hot topics are on your minds. Yeah? Yes. Satish, I was just wondering, in terms of being an influencer with your knowledge, and actually both of you, I mean, you've got access to, I should imagine, quite high-powered people or people who are in positions of power in terms of the influence they have, maybe in education, this and the other. Um, and while I love having these amazing gatherings, it's just hard to know sometimes whether any of that information is being preached to the converted or if, if there are ways of that these messages are being heard by people who can actually bring something out there that affects the masses of people who are in this cloud of mass production and don't yes. want anything else. So how to influence the mainstream? Well, yes, yeah. And yeah. is that something that, that is happening and impossible? Yeah. Maybe. I do not have influence um, um, <laughs> among people who are in positions of power. Uh, a lot of people, well, I don't know how many actually, but I often get uh, emails or communication from people who were in positions of power mm. and dropped out. They're, you know, they used to work for a hedge fund, they used to be on Wall Street, they used to be in politics, they used to be a CEO, and then they dropped out and they've become interested in my work. But um, people who are still in the old story, as I sometimes call it, um, I'm, it's almost like I'm in a different universe. However, their universe is, is disintegrating. And as far as preaching to the choir, it's not quite that simple. Because, for one thing, when we're together here, we all resonate with the ideas that are coming up. But then, and, and it seems common sense almost, but then you go out into the rest of the world, and from every direction, you're getting uh, pulled out of that understanding, that perception. So I think it's really important to, to have a choir, yeah, yeah. to learn to sing together, and to be strong in that, um, in these perceptions that are very um, different from the normalcy that envelops us. So to become strong in that is really important. And then we can welcome other people into it when they're wavering on the edge. Because guess what? Like, actually, I'm wavering on the edge in some ways. Mm -hmm. And then I run into somebody who's really standing strong in the story of interbeing. And I'm, and I'm like, thank you for holding me there. You know, we all hold each other in it. So 
Please ask the right to 10 Downing Street and ask uh, Theresa May to invite Charles and Satish to talk to her. Or <laughs> 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 Bank of England. But the thing is that <clears throat> uh, we need both. We need top-down changes and bottom-up movement. We need both. Uh, but bottom-up movement, the real power, is power of people's opinion and public opinion. And <clears throat> when people wanted to get out of Europe and Brexit, uh, David Cameron and Bank of England and IMF and and, and uh, all the kind of um, big, big establishment people, they spoke in favor of Remain, but they could not succeed because there was some change in the mood uh, of people. So in the same way, if there's a big change in the mood of general population, so people power is the real superpower, not United States of America superpower or Russia superpower or China superpower. It's a people's opinion, public opinion is the real superpower. So the work of Charles and myself and Resurgence and Shumahal College and all those things is to create that kind of uh, people power and people's opinion uh, in favor of ecology, sacred economy, living different kind of lifestyle, which is, which is good, but not wasteful. Uh, only thing we want from the mainstream society is do not create pollution of earth, air, fire, water, and do not waste. The economy of nature is without waste, as Charles said. If we can uh, sort of learn from nature and create economy without waste, then do what you like. There's nothing to, nothing to stop. As long as you guarantee there will be no waste and no pollution, you can do anything. So, so people power is the most important. And, and I think now, a little bit of change even happening, I think, um, 190 nations coming together in Paris to acknowledging that climate is, a, and we are, I want to ask uh, Charles uh, about climate change. Uh, climate change is a big issue and we have to address it. And humans are responsible for changing the climate. That's a big uh, admission by the mainstream that we are responsible for creating this uh, chaos and, and climate and global warming. This except, and many scientists are coming around. And also, if you see renewable energy, when I started uh, resurgence editing, not one single windmill was producing energy in Britain. Not one solar panel was producing energy in Britain at that time, in 1973. In just 43 years now, 24% of energy in Britain is produced through renewable sources. That's a huge change, and that change comes not because of government, not because of Bank of England, it has come because people have started to uh, change their thinking, and then government sometimes helps with subsidies or uh, tax um, break or something, so that's a help. So I would say go for changing people's view and mood and opinion. And when people demand, and politicians will say, oh, there are votes in green, even David Cameron said, vote blue, get green. He thought there were vote in it, but he didn't stick with it. <laughs> uh, so if politicians will see that there are vote in sacred economy, green economy, renewable energy, um, kind of organic farming, all these things which are more benign to environment, more kind of um, good for the health of 
people. When they see, I mean, national health is breaking down because of so many ill people. Why we have so many ill people? Because we don't live healthy life. So if we lived healthy life at a grassroots level, so our work is more at the grassroots level. But if you can get us into Bank of England <laughs> and then now we say, try. I'll be happy to go and talk to talk to the parliamentarians <laughs> if they invite me. <laughs> well, that, that seems like there's the, the sort of academia, the educators, you know, they're all, they're all very picking up. No, this is what I was saying to Rory. I was saying to Rory that this place can, it's, it's a kind of prestigious place, very comfortable place, beautiful location. This is the place where you can bring politicians, academics, artists, business leaders, financiers, hedge funders, whatever they are, invite them here, they will pay you and make this place a big center for discussion, for change, for, for um, conversation about new paradigm. So this is a kind of big challenge. I was speaking with Rodi about this, because you need places like this, otherwise in a small place, these wealthy and powerful people won't come. They think it's not comfortable enough. But this is a comfortable place. They can come and talk about future of humanity and future of the earth. Yes, your question. Yes, no, I just, uh, it was part of that question. But I w thank you for this morning, because that was so inter interesting. And I think there is that the, the people movement coming, you know, that's yeah. very important. And also the, the governments, everything. But also, on the, the small solutions, and one of them was your going back to your hands and making things. Yes, and that is a big thing. Yeah, if we could all just bring that into our lives. Yes, uh, and into our friends' lives, yeah. and our children's lives. Yeah, um, those are the things that can really change yeah. and feed the soul. Yeah, because uh, financially, money we know money doesn't bring happiness, and it yeah. doesn't. It strips the soul away. Yeah. and is it because? My question is, is it because we are stripping nature and that is stripping ourselves, or is it because we have lost contact with uh, doing things? We become lazy. We don't, we don't take the time to go and make bake a cake anymore or uh, create a costume for your child. It, it's all too, we don't have time for that anymore. In my thinking, what we have lost what we have lost is contentment. Our society does not celebrate what we have and always wanting what we do not have. That's where economic growth comes in. We want more, more, more. What I would like to say, if we want an ecological and an environmental sustainability and, and a kind of harmony, all the things, sacred economy, if we, want, we need to learn to celebrate nature, celebrate relationship, celebrate friendship, celebrate community, celebrate family, celebrate our lo local villages, celebrate art and craft, celebrate Richard Long's work. So celebration is lost. We are busy, 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 9 to 5, uh, and bankers work from 8 to 8 p.m., 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We are working too much and not celebrating, and there's no contentment. This is where the soul quality is. We need to learn to be contented. I have enough food, I have enough clothes, I have enough, let's celebrate, let's have family, friends, art, music, culture, these are more important than work, 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 more money, more money, more money. And so if we can learn to celebrate and learn to be contented, I think we will be healthy and we'll be happy 
and, and we will protect nature. And is there a relationship between celebration and gratitude? Yes, there is a celebration and gratitude. Gratitude, word is gracious attitude. Gratitude. So we need to, at the moment of society, going for glamour. <laughs> we need to go from glamour to grace. And graciousness is gratitude. So humility is very important because we need to, to be, um, gratitude requires humility. And, and so thank you trees for giving us oxygen. Thank you soil for giving us food. Thank you my dear wife for being with me. Thank you my husband being with me. Thank you children for being our children. Even don't, I mean, don't look at the shortcomings of the others. In gratitude, you have to look at the, not at the shortcomings of your husband, wife, children, parents, neighbors, friends, but look at the good side and exaggerate it, kind of like a focusing on it, like magnify it and, and minim minimize the shortcoming. That's a gratitude. But when you sit in judgment, and tell people, oh, you are no good, and you are doing this, and you are doing a small thing, we exaggerate, bad things. And big, good things, we ignore. So, I think gratitude requires that appreciation, that graciousness. That's why humility is also important in gratitude. I'd like to add something to this. One of the uh, seldom questioned assumptions of the story of separation that says that we're a separate self in a world of other selves and a world of other is that um, any change, any improvement is something that you accomplish by changing yourself through intention and will. So for example, Satish is talking about the importance of gratitude. So the programming of the separate self says, okay, I'm gonna strive to be uh, more grateful. I'm gonna strive to be more humble. I'm going to strive to be less lazy. I'm going to strive. It's all something that can become an accomplishment. That if you achieve, then you get credit for it. And if you fail at it, you feel defeated. And you feel that you failed. But what if all of this is a delusion? What if gratitude comes from the experience of being the experience of generosity, the experience of being gifted. What if self-acceptance comes from being deeply accepted by a community? What if humility comes through being humbled and shown the truth? What if surrender comes through being surrendered from reaching the end of your resources and giving up because you can't do it anymore? What if all of the uh, virtues that we wish to cultivate come to us as gifts? I think that Laziness, for example, is a symptom and not a cause of our situation. It is a symptom of, of being defeated. I think greed is a symptom of insecurity. And I think that contentment comes from relationship, comes from being richly held in a web of relationship, of community, relationship with people and relationship with nature. It comes from intimacy. When we have that, contentment is effortless. Like the film we saw last night, those people are content because they are at home in the universe. Mm. They're held in a web of relationship that 
is very, very strong. So when we don't have that, we're fighting against the stream. And you might come away from this very inspired by Satish, by the contentment that he radiates. And you're like, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to uh, focus on the positive and minimize the negative, And I'm not going to complain anymore. And you might be very sincere in wanting to bring this into your life. But then you get back into the context of modern life and the old habits come back because the old habits are reinforced by the context of modern life. And they're even, you could say, the inner echo or the projection of, for example, economic insecurity. Uh, we have a setup where if you're the nice guy, you finish last. If, you, if, if somebody else gets there first, they get the job and not you. So if I don't get the job, I say, thank goodness I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I guess what I'm saying is, is um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what you are saying is that it has to be unselfconscious. Is that what you are saying? It has to be very natural. Um, not I guess I, I guess I want effortless. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not offering a prescription. No, no, no. You know, and that's, that's one of the other uh, seldom questioned assumptions yeah. of our way of thinking is that the answer or the, the resolution is going to come because somebody comes along and says, here's how to do it and provides the correct answer. Yeah, yeah. School teaches us that the goal of life is to provide the correct answer. No, no, what I'm saying, Charles, yeah. is that um, we, uh, you are human. We are humans. Being human means to be humble. Human and humility come from the same root. Mm -hmm. So when you are human, that means you naturally, unconditioned, natural being, like we saw in the film, you are human, so you are humble, you are humility. And the word human also comes from humus, which means soils. So we are soil. Soil is always under your feet. It's never on your head. So if you are, if you are human, to be is not to become humble, but realize who we are. Yes. Realize self-realization that I'm a human, and and I want to be human. To be or not to be. Do you want to be a human or not to be a human? At the moment, we are not being human. That's all I'm saying. So gratitude, celebration, come from humility, and humility is our natural state. Although in soil, humus, which is also humility and human, soil also has weeds, soil also has thorns. We are also human, and so our huma hum hum humanity also has a bit of fear, a bit of anger, a bit of this and that and so on. And that's a kind of always journey that we have to make. We have to always be aware, mindful, that this is my anger, how I deal with it. This is my fear, how I deal with it. Be human, be mindful, be self-aware and say, I'm not only anger and fear, I'm also compassion and kindness and generosity and love. And I love flowers. That's my human nature. I love men. I love women. 
I love my children. I love my mother. That's my natural being. I don't have to pretend that I'm trying to become loving. You don't have to do that. You are. Just realize that being human is also to be humble and kind and compassionate. But sometimes also I get angry. I have to accept. I have to embrace my imperfections. So I'm not asking people to be perfect. I'm asking, don't forget your true nature. It's also humble and compassionate. That's all I'm saying. You don't have to mm. grasp it. Yeah. You don't have to grasp humility. You are that. Realize it. And maybe to gently cultivate it rather than the striving. I would find that helpful, uh, especially the connection to soil, to gently cultivate these qualities. Thank you. Yes? And you? Um, I just want to say as well that in terms of what you said, Charles, about, you know, it's very easy for us to see Satish and he's so content in himself and for us to be inspired by that. But I think inherently in what you're saying, it's creating separation in itself by saying that we can't achieve that um, when we leave. And, and I think that it's really important that even if it's not perfect, that we take responsibility for ourselves in this turning of the age that we all so want to, to be. Um, and we go and we get out of our heads and out of intellectualizing it and drop into our hearts and connect with others and even if it's not perfect and we're not grateful all the time, if we have that point of reference in, in our minds and in our hearts, then we can always return to it. Um, so I understand what you're saying, but I also think it is really important to be inspired by others people like Satish who are just a ray of sun, walking sunshine to then be able to leave and embody that in ourselves and that's how we inspire each other and, and like you said, you know, when you're feeling like you're flagging a bit and you meet someone and they're so solid in themselves, they help you. So yeah, for me this, this weekend is really about us taking responsibility for every little thing that we do and, and every... Um, emotion that we we feel and act of gratitude and and graciousness for this beautiful planet that we live on. Mm -hmm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Peter? Yeah, just as well. Um, just back to the economic question, the economic question. Right? Um, uh, a lot of us here are familiar with the sustainable development principles of the triple bottom line and making decisions through the lens of social and environmental and economic and balancing the three. But I wonder whether we're, we're kind of moving on from that to placing the, the well-being of, of humankind and of the planet right at the heart of the new thinking, if you like. Um, and I was recently lucky enough to be invited to do some work in Bhutan and was very taken by the idea of gross national happiness and the idea of that index replacing GDP and GNP. And I wondered what you guys thought of that kind of principle I'm not quite sure how effective it is. I didn't spend long enough to find out how authentically it was being translated into all of the governmental decisions and social, environmental, and economic decisions. But I guess the question is, have we, are we moving from that triple bottom line sustainable development thinking into a new paradigm thinking? But also do things like gross national happiness as a principle help with that? Mm. Um, yeah. You know, gross national happiness originated as kind of a quip right. by the king of Bhutan. Right. Um, 
that you know, we should talk about gross national happiness, not gross national product. And then, from what I understand, the economists grabbed hold of that and said, yes, let's quantify that. <laughs> so, because then they, that's something that they can sink their teeth into. They can use their methods on that. Um, you know, the, the whole, there's, the, there's a whole kind of historical thread here going back to Jeremy Bentham, uh, you know, who basically, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, I've got Rupert Sheldrake over here who could correct me if, I'm, if, I, if I get my philosophers wrong here, but um, he said essentially that the way to run society is to uh, somehow quantify happiness so that you can uh, serve the greatest good of the greatest number. And, and you can kind of add up all of the happiness levels. And if a certain policy generates more of it, then that's the one you should pick. So you need to quantify uh, well-being, quantify utility, quantify happiness. Maybe they can Right. Well, so then, then economists then say, yes, and we, we, we can quantify it. The, the way to quantify it is with money. Because you're not going to buy something if you don't want it, right? If it doesn't serve your happiness. So therefore, the more things that are being bought, the more happiness there is. And we can tell what people want by what they want to pay for. So that's one of the, to my understanding, one of the kind of philosophical roots of the equation of GDP with well-being. Now, obviously, it's not working very well. And there's, there's some very trenchant critiques of uh, GDP as a measure of happiness. You know, it includes things like prisons, divorce, uh, strip mines, you know, all kinds of things that don't serve human happiness add to GDP. So um, gross national happiness, and there are other measures too that are used that uh, attempt to remedy the shortcomings of GDP and come up with other metrics that more accurate, accurately reflect human happiness so that once again, government policy can be to maximize a quantity. But I think that, and again, it's kind of like ecosystem services. It's, it's, it's yes. well-motivated, but yeah. it assumes that happiness is something that you can and should quantify. Yeah. And it, it validates and encourages the whole way of problem solving, the whole way of policy making, of decision making, mm. that's based on quantity. And I think that that is part of your paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Quantifying is like, as you say, ecosystem services, a similar thing. I agree with Charles that you can't quantify well being. Uh, but uh, there is a, a kind of another way is uh, at Resurgence 50th anniversary, there was a one speaker. Uh, Jonathan Bate, uh, who is um, provost of Worcester College and wrote a book on Song of the Earth. It's very ecological and literature, poetry, so on. And he, his talk was about being and well-being. And, and going beyond this quantification and just recognizing that, uh, that the, um, the aim of development or aim of economy is not only to raise the living standards, but also to recognize that society needs well-being rather than just living standards. Yeah. So if that is a kind of 
idea as a kind of vision value, uh, then it it has it has a good meaning, <coughs> being and well-being. But I agree with Charles that you cannot quantify. You cannot. It's not a part of the government or the economist or or the or the GDP. It's a kind of idea where being and well-being should be uh, part of our consciousness instead of just raising living standard more and more and more. Thank you. Yes? Just thinking on the question of money and what it's become and it's losing its meaning and so on, it might be always quite useful to interchange the word energy with money. Because then, because money's always been for yeah. that purpose, you know, so if you say, well, um, I want to achieve something, then how much money do I need for it? If you say, well, what energy do I need to achieve that particular purpose, then the resources, whether it's money or <coughs> synchronicities or whatever else resources you need, then will, will come and you know what you need. Um, so I think that would then negate the sort of view of saying, well, I need money just for the sake of it, you know, I just need more money. Because it's like saying, well, I need more energy. It's like, well, what are you going to do with it? You can't just pull energy, it's so, you know, energy flows. So it's a uh, it seems to me a kind of synonym to... What do you mean by energy? Well, it's, it's, it's a flow of, of force. Um, flow? Of force. force. Power. Yeah, inner power. Yeah. Yes, I think it's a, it's a good... Um, yeah, money or energy. I mean, my personally speaking, uh, when I feel a little bit lack of energy, I just say, energy, where are you? <laughs> I literally, I say to myself, energy, where are you? Come on. I need to do gardening or washing up. When you are, when you are having lunch and I feel a bit lethargic, I want to go to bed or something, or have a siesta, I say, energy, where are you? I, you, I need you to do washing up. So energy comes and does washing up for me. And I use my hand, but the energy using my hands to do the washing up. So I think you can have that kind of consciousness. Energy is something which is very subtle. And, and it depends to some extent. Um, like yesterday, you interviewed Ian McGilchrist. That's a wonderful... Uh, I happen to know him. He came to Schumacher College to teach. And, uh, and he... So right brain and left brain. So sometimes I say to my right brain, come on, where are you? Do this or do that. So energy is like that. You, there is a kind of within us, like mind and heart. Sometimes you have to call upon your heart to, to address the situation or to reflect on something. So energy, right brain, heart, these are subtle, unmeasurable, unquantifiable, but you can you can call upon them. Yes? Talking about money and our relationship with money. Yes. And trying to reimagine that concept and just thinking about almost continue, continuing your two points and almost looking at when you spend money, it's almost like you're voting. You're empowering uh, the person you're giving the money to. So if you look at it in that concept, we are actually a lot more powerful than we give ourselves credit for because if we spend together, we can then shift the paradigm every day. Because obviously we wait four years to vote in a political system 
it has a negligible amount of impact. But we spend money every single day. And if we spent collectively in an empowered, knowledgeable way, it would slowly shift, but in a real way, in a way that I actually feel is kind of, uh, potentially could create a change that we all, we're all looking for. And it's just reimagining the pound, reimagining the dollar, something mm. that we all have to vary. Revisioning and reimagining, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, I mean, the consumer choices can definitely have a big influence on the way that the economy works. But there's also a limit um, because your consumer choices are limited by the choices that are available to you. So, for example, suppose that you wanted to buy a cell phone that um, wasn't made with rare earth minerals stripped from the Congo. You, as far as I know, there is not such a cell phone available. Uh, or suppose I want to, um, you know, live where I live and not have an automobile. It's really impossible for me to do that. So we also, if we want to be able to make the choices that call to us, we also have to change, do things that change the, the environment that offers us the choices. It's a similar point to the one I was trying to make before um, a bit clumsily uh, about it's not just up to us. Really, yeah, like really what I wanted is, really the message I want to say is go easy on yourself. You know, if you find yourself unable to live up to these beautiful ideals, mm. it's not because you weren't strong enough. Mm. Uh, it was perhaps because you didn't receive all that you needed to be in that state. And so to be very, you know, when I realize that, then I feel forgiveness for myself. And when I realize that about other people, instead of judging them for being greedy, ignorant, uh, racist Trump supporters, uh, I seek to understand, yeah, what, what are, what's the totality of circumstances that puts them in that state? And then to understand, if I were in that state, I would be just like you. So that's another one of these qualities that we aspire to is forgiveness, which I think is also a symptom of something else. And as Satisha was saying, actually, it's a symptom of being in the truth, of seeing the truth. Because when you see why somebody did something, you understand, oh, that's why you were doing that, then forgiveness is natural. So again, like, and again, to, to quote Satish, or to, to use the concept, this return to, it's really a return to humanity, a return to the soil, a return to human nature, um, that it's like a, it's like, and it's our natural motion. All things tend toward healing, toward wholeness. If, you know, if you have a parking lot, uh, a big sheet of concrete over the soil, you can, in order to keep it that way, you have to exert constant effort. Mm. Otherwise, cracks grass will come. <laughs> dandelions come up, grass, right? And then eventually it becomes beautiful again. So ugliness can only be maintained with great effort. <laughs> eventually, eventually you get tired. As our civilization is getting tired, eventually you give up. And finally then, the parking lot returns to the forest. Very good. Very good. Yes, please. Ask Charles, what's your, so if you could um, describe your vision for 
post-transformational vision for vision for your sort of post-transformed sacred economic world. How we live. I think everybody has a pretty good idea of what it would look like. You know, it would. Um, I'm not sure I want to go into the details of what an industrial economy looked like that where everything was, everything was designed for um, reusability. Um, today, that's kind of an afterthought. Uh, I mean, I have ideas about, about money and how to align it with gift so that it decays like everything else in the, on the planet so that it's no longer something that you can benefit by hoarding and keeping it. Um, it, it takes quite some doing, though, to really lay these ideas out. So I'm not going to do that now. And, but I will say that, I mean, I wrote the book Sacred Economics, like laying out this vision. But I want to say that I really don't know. And I think that what we are going to come to is not visible from where we're standing right now. And that we have to go through this phase of unknowing and bewilderment. And it's not going to be resolved by some smart guy among lots of other smart guys who comes up with the smartest idea and convinces everybody here is the mathematical perfection of the way the economy should look like. But that's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to be this emergent thing. And we just, from where we're standing now, all we can get are these glimpses of it. And we're like, wow, that's really beautiful. And the glimpses might come through personal experiences, experiences of, of sharing. Um, when there is a temporary breakdown, like happens in a natural disaster, and people come out of their houses and out of their separate private lives, and it's not chaos and anarchy. The first thing that happens is people start taking care of each other. So that's maybe one of those glimpses of a more beautiful world. Very good. And uh, the thing is that um, uh, William Morris wrote News from Nowhere, which is pretty utopian. And was it Thomas More who wrote uh, Utopia? Thomas More. 500 years ago, that book was written, Utopia. Um, so there is no such thing as utopia, really. Utopia means no place. Life is a process and emergent. So things are emerging, things will change, uh, but we'll never have a time when we have solved all the problems. It would be a boring time if it was. It would be very boring if there were no problems uh, facing humanity. Uh, it will always be set, even at the time of Jesus Christ or the Buddha or Lao Tzu, there were problems. And there was no um, pollution of this kind which we have today, no population explosion as we have today, uh, no fossil fuel um, problem as we have today. And yet, the Buddha taught about suffering. And we have to bring an end to suffering. So, so this is a kind of life evolves, changes, but there's no utopia. And, and it's a process of transformation all the time happening. But in that context, I would say, I would like to see a world where we abolish employment. My ideal world of transformation will be where we are all making things, uh, living uh, in a way where Nobody is a boss for somebody else. Every human being is, has possibility to be imaginative, creative, 
and live their life according to their own imagination and creativity in cooperation, but not in kind of glorified slavery as we have today. I mean, if you are working in a conveyor belt factory of producing cars or conveyor belt uh, or, or bureaucracy or all the kind of jobs we have today, I think these jobs are very dehumanizing. More and more people are in conditions where they are wage slaves and they are addicted to their monthly wage because they don't know how to live otherwise. We have human imagination, we have creativity, we have energy, we have spirituality, we have a soul. We can make life and nature is there to provide. We can grow food, we can build houses, we can make clothes, we can make furniture, we can make without being employees. So one of my ideal uh, transformed society will be where the slavery, uh, uh, where people are kind of wage slaves and, and, and only job, I mean you are PhD, double MA, Oxford graduate, Cambridge, Yale, <laughs> all the universities. What do you what do you say? Go and become a slave of some big company, big corporation. Go and work for tech, uh, uh, Walmart or or BP or some big company. That's not the purpose of education. Purpose of education is to be yourself, discover your own skills. So my utopia if it can be achieved, would be when we are free spirit and free human beings living our life in cooperation, in love, in compassion, but not in servitude. Could it be true to say that in the vision of uh, a new world that it would not include the governance of the planet by 193 economic entities at the United Nations who need the economic growth to buy the guns to dominate the rest of the world. Yes. Would that be true? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you for an easy question. <laughs> I just find the concept of um monetizing natural resources I found it's quite an interesting discussion because I think philosophically spiritually I'm actually absolutely with you how can you put a value on a forest or a tree but at the same time if we're going to actually protect these things would it not be a good idea to have that as an interim measure while the old story still has life in it? Are we, are we reinforcing the old story by trying to combat it that way? But if we don't do that, are we going to be too late if we sit around and kind of wait for the old story to die? You know, how much more rainforest will be torn down before there is e you know, mass economic collapse and we run out of fuel and have to do things a different way? I'm not sure where I stand on that. No one's saying to sit back and mm -hmm. wait for the old machine to die. Uh, in fact, if you want the old machine to die faster, you have to deprive it of food. The food is anything that it can devour and convert into money. So if you can protect a rainforest or an indigenous culture or a watershed or anything, the fish in the ocean, the whales, you can prevent this from being converted into money then you're depriving the machine of the food it needs for growth. And 
hastening the transition, mitigating the severity of the crisis. Yeah. Because there's still some wealth that hasn't been untouched. As far as like the nitty gritty of, you know, as an interim measure, should we monetize ecosystem services? You know, like I think it's going to happen anyway. It's not the thing I'm active about. And I also think that it's because of the assumptions built into it, it's going to be, it's going to backfire. It always does. Well, not always, but very often does. Like, for example, the uh, monetization of carbon that gives you carbon credit, like you saw in that film, those logs were stamped sustainable because there were certain measurable criteria, which can be cheated on, for example, by the way, that qualify it as sustainable, but does it really have respect in it? You know, no. And the same thing is happening with these palm oil plantations all over the world that, that I mean, in North Carolina, where I live, they're, they're taking these um, uh, swamp forests and making wood chips out of them, exporting the wood chips to power plants in the UK, which then burn them and they get, that counts as green because it's a renewable resource. So, like, I just don't think that we're going to have anything much different from what we have right now coming from the same mentality that we're coming from. So, yeah. Very good. Yes. Um, I don't know whether you talked about this yesterday, unfortunately I wasn't here, but um, I'm, all the time while we're talking, we keep using the same language that we use in the old story. And as linguists, I always think um, it's so difficult to get out of that paradigm, that linguistic paradigm of saying, um, we need to acquire this, or what do I need in order to get that? Sort of, we're stuck in, um, through our language and our thinking, and I think our, our language sort of informs the way we process information. Um, through this language, we kind of hold ourselves back in that old story and in that old paradigm. Um, I don't know whether you've addressed that. So what would be the new new language you would use? How would you use it? Can you give one or two examples of new language? I think as with so many other things, it's a, it's a, um, a matter of being aware, of just being aware, aware how I use my metaphors or um, do I really need to talk about the new economy in the same way with this, using the same phrases and the same sort of ideas and ideologies that we used in, in the previous economy? Or could I think about it in a different way? You know, just being aware changes it already, I think. By being aware, you change. Yes. By being aware, you change. Is yes, that what you're saying? I, I think so. By being aware of... You spoke earlier about my anger. You have an anger inside you sometimes. Yeah. Being aware of your anger yes. and that you have it and attending that anger yeah. makes it different. Different, yeah. So thinking about language and, and the way we use it. For instance, when we talk about relationships, we often use metaphors of war. Um, loads of people have written about that. You know, you win an argument and he was fought he fought back and, and all of that. Um, and as soon as we become aware of that, of our linguistic power, I think we can uh, sort of hopefully change it to something mm. else. Mm. Okay, good point. What do you think, Charles? Language. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, English has some of those 
metaphysical assumptions that we talked about yesterday built into it, like objectivity. The word is, for example, assumes that there's something, there's an objective backdrop against which we can determine fact and fiction. Um, and there are, you know, very sophisticated critiques of this and alternatives. David Bohm famously came up with an alternative which, in which everything is essentially a verb, the real mode, he called it in a, a somewhat impenetrable essay. <laughs> in, it's one of these in the book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order. But, and, and other languages are much less noun-centered. The more primitive the language is, usually the more it emphasizes process rather than being. But um, like English, though, also has an indigenous root to it. Not only that, we, when we communicate, it's not merely through the semantic content of our words, but it's also through the voice beneath the words, the cadence, the rhythm, uh, the intonation. So we're communicating on multiple levels at once. Language is a kind of translation of your intention. Uh, so what is your intention? What is your motivation? That informs the language. But um, uh, in uh, my language, in Hindi, there's no such thing as to have. We don't have the have, which is so fundamental in the English language, to have. And, uh, and there's a beautiful book by Eric Fromm uh, called To Have or To Be. And uh, has anybody read To Have or To Be? Yes, you have? Yeah. It's a very beautiful book. And um, so what you are saying about, like awareness, is very wonderful. Um, if we can shift our attention from the language of having to language of being, we shift quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Because, um, for example, I want to have a friend. I'm expecting you to be my friend because I want to have a friend. But Eric Fromm will say, rather than wanting to have a friend, be a friend. Then, automatically, the consequence of your being a friend will be that you have a friend. But having a friend is not your language. It's not in your vocabulary. Your vocabulary is, I, I will be a lover, not I want to have a lover. I want to be a husband not I want to have a wife. So being is the language which Eric Fromm says is, is the key to our changing. When we have a have, I want to have money, I want to have a job, I want to have this, I want to have that. Having, possessing, that possessiveness. I want to have a wife, I want to have this and that. So that was one way of shifting our language from having to being. Can I give you an example, an example of that that comes up for me is, is if I talk about my work, yeah. um, there's a delusion built into that phrase, my work. My work. It's actually yeah. not my work. Yeah. It's work, ideas, narratives that have chosen me to come through you. Voice them. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're coming through me, but I'm their servant. They're not mine at all. And that's one reason why so to bring awareness to that, um, it's not for me, it's not just awareness, that, or 
let's just say that the, the awareness then engenders other ways of speaking. So I'll say the work that I do. And then it engenders uh, different kinds of relationships because now I no longer want to assert intellectual property rights. So I use Creative Commons property, a Creative Commons copyright that allows the free use of it to others. So, um, but yeah, I think you're right that it starts with an awareness of what am I really saying here? You know, what, what, what assumptions am I affirming mm. when I speak in a certain way? And I like the idea of directionality because, as you just said, with the paths, if I think of myself as being in need, then I, I want things to come to me. Um, whereas if I uh, am something, yeah. then I generate it from within. From within. And it's a completely different direction. I give it out rather than wanting to attract it to come yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's um, from outside in or from inside out. That's a very big question. Um, education, for example, is to educare, is to bring out from inside. Mm. Like a tree comes from inside the seed and emerges. Whereas our modern way of thinking and language is to put from outside in. So in your go to school, your child is nothing empty bucket or empty vessel and the job of a teacher is to fill with information, knowledge, language, this and that. And so if we can, I think language is very important, uh, you are absolutely right. If we can change our language that will affect our consciousness, that will affect our way of thinking and, and so from, so development for example, uh, development should come from inside out. You, you go to a village in Africa and say, oh, you don't have a school, we'll bring you a school. We don't have a road, we'll bring you a road. You don't have jobs, we'll bring you industry. That's from outside imposing development on people. Whereas, uh, what do you have here? You have land. How can we help you to, to, you have some tradition, you have some songs, you have some music. You, what do you have here? Finding out what you have and emerging from that inside out, like a seed becoming a tree then there's no imposition, not alien culture being imposed on, or westernization being imposed on the whole world. So inside out is a, a very important uh, way uh, to use language. So I think language is very important, how we use language. Huh? I don't want to monopolize those questions, but, um, Education was the other thing. When you talked about education earlier in your conversation, um, you didn't mention, um, you mentioned William Morris, which, which is great. Um, the idea of producing something um, and in that way sort of making manifest what is inside you, sort of your creativity, your imagination becoming actually a physical shape. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about the Steiner movement that actually says, we have a child there. Steiner movement. Steiner? Steiner, yeah. yeah. Everything that's in the child is already there. Yeah. And as an educator, my task is to just sort of help bring out and, and create conditions yeah. for this to arise and to, to just come out. Yeah. So it's not education in, in, you know, in an ideal world 
Steiner education would not be an uh, education that fields from there, but rather nurtures from here. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that's a good good point. Hmm? Yeah, Steiner and Montessori both share that that basic philosophy of yeah. of trusting in the child and yeah yeah. To, to, yes. a, to a certain extent, the language that we use depends on our self-awareness. And if we wake up in the morning and we think we're a victim, we will use a victimhood narrative story and those associated words. If we wake up in the morning and we think we're a hero, then we will use a different language to explain to ourselves what's happening to us. So to the extent that self-awareness and, and those who we think we are determines the language that we use to explain our experience. I think that's one way of seeing it. We have maybe time for one more question and I think I'd like to again invite Somebody who has not asked before. the quiet person. How about there? Okay. Last question. I'd like, yeah, if we can just actually, can we just like take a half a minute silent pause again, as we did before. And um, just to kind of give space to the quiet people who may not have said anything in the group, I would like to hear all the voices. So if you're that person, you have a shy question, then we would welcome it. Yes, so any shy questions? There is a question, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, that might be me. Um, <laughs> uh, to reach this new world, new reality, does it need to be linked to a big catastrophe or a big crash, or can it be a smooth transition? What do you well, think? So I didn't get the question, okay. Martin. To reach this new reality or the new world we're talking about, yeah. does it need to be linked to a big crash or catastrophe, <coughs> or can it be a smooth transition? Okay. Well, in my life, really big changes don't happen without some kind of crash. Uh, that, you know, I might see the need for the change in theory. Like, I got to start doing this, I got to stop doing that. But as long as the way I'm living still sort of works, I don't usually make that change. And I think that is true of societies as well. That said, what looks like a horrifying, scary crash from one side, once, once one has gone through that, it wasn't maybe that bad. Uh, and I think that, especially with this election coming up, I think that the United States can very well, go th very soon, go through a period of great turmoil and a collapse of much that has been familiar to us a collapse of normal. But you know, even if, even, if all, even if the entire financial system totally collapses, that doesn't change the amount of food that the earth can produce. It doesn't change the skills that human beings have. And once the, um, the, 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 the social structures have disintegrated that maintain the status quo, like there's so much life that is waiting to burst forth. You know, these technologies of reunion that I talked about yesterday, like 
um, the stuff with water, for example, even like all of these things that are marginal right now in agriculture, organic agriculture, permaculture, like contrary to the uh, mainstream critics, these are not uh, frivolities of the rich that could never feed the world. They can produce more food if people get their hands in the soil. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's this a, a healed world, a more beautiful world is so close. You know, so close. All we need is to stop. We need to stop doing what we're doing. But how does that happen? Maybe it happens when we reach the end of our ability to keep that pavement intact. Yeah. Ch Charles is uh, a Chinese scholar. No, 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 I'm not. No? <laughs> Chinese ling linguist? I, I, I used to be a translator of Chinese. But you know Chinese language? Yes, yes, yes. And in Chinese language, crisis and opportunity are spelled in a similar way. I have, I have, I have heard. I don't know Chinese. Wei Qi. Well, the, the word Qi can, can, is used in both the words for crisis and opportunity. That's yeah, true. That's yeah. it. It's one so, of those cliches that's actually true. That's it. So crisis, you are talking about collapse or crisis, is always an opportunity. So do not fear crisis. No need to fear crisis. Crisis is an opportunity. And do not fear the pain. Particularly, I can't say that to you, um, but mothers give birth. And that is a very uh, painful life and death moment to give birth to a child. So giving birth to a new society is not going to be easy. <laughs> and therefore, uh, but mother, though she knows the pain, I mean, I'm speaking to you a kind of on an observer, but, uh, but mothers know the pain is there. Uh, and I've seen my wife giving birth to two children, so I have some experience, although I have not gone through myself. <laughs> Maybe next life I'll be a, a woman. <laughs> so uh, do not fear giving birth to a new paradigm, new worldview, new way of life. When you have a new marriage, I mean, uh, Charles said, second wife, you want to crisis, and then you have a new marriage, and that could be a new opportunity. So, uh, we will dance with joy when there's a crisis, and when there's a new birth for a new paradigm taking place. And as, as um, Charles said, I totally agree that human wisdom is not going to disappear with the, um, with the uh, collapse of uh, banks or cities or industrial system. Human wisdom will remain. Imagination and poetry will remain. Uh, land will always give you food. Cows will give milk. And, and the trees will give apples. And that will not going to collapse. So what will collapse is this kind of industrial system that we have built. And there'll be a new, this, is, this is a kind of only 200 years, 300 years old system. Humanity survived before the Industrial Revolution. And, and we were able to write poetry. Shakespeare was able to write plays without computers. <laughs> so so we, can, we will not have a time when there will be no Shakespeare writing plays and Milton writing poetry and Dante writing uh, all those wonderful things. 
So there will always be a new Bible, a new Buddha. We, we have trust. We have trust in the future and no fear of crisis. There could be hardship, though. Um, yes. There could be a period that's, that's very, um, very dark and yeah. a lot of suffering. Yeah. Labor pain. Yeah. Labor pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.